This episode of Astorium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com history. And start your journey into podcasting right. Hello, history nerds. This is Nick. And this is Andy, and we host The Concession Stand, a podcast from two guys who work in the TV and movie business right here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to the Historium Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. The War of 1812 is easily one of the United States' most forgotten wars. It's often neglected in most history classes due to its location between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War in the U.S.'s timeline. But this little war, especially the final battle, had a lasting effect on U.S. history and changed how the ragtag nation would be viewed on the world stage ever since. This week, we'll look at the Battle of New Orleans, and how the outcome of the battle was affected by the leadership, weaponry, and, well, a whole lot of luck. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 33, Miracle on the Mississippi. In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Despite there being a new regime in France, led by the cunning Napoleon Bonaparte, the young United States still had a strong relationship with the country that had helped them win their war for independence. The United States was a huge trading partner for France, which was now embroiled in the Napoleonic Wars. The French Empire had been very successful in their campaign in continental Europe, but Britain still owned the seas with their naval superiority. England used their navy to assert their dominance over anyone who provided support to France, including the United States. Many American sailors escorting trade ships were forcibly taken and coerced into serving in the sprawling and often understaffed Royal Navy. This action was called impressment, and it, combined with English supplying Native Americans with armaments and the United States really wanting to take Canada for itself, began the War of 1812. The war remained in a stalemate for the first few years, with the bulk of the fighting happening near the Canadian border. But things changed when Napoleon was defeated in Europe and exiled to the island of Elba. Now, Britain could shift its entire focus to the war in North America. The entirety of the English war machine now rumbled at America's doorstep. By 1814, nearly every port in the United States was blockaded, and naval raids were happening frequently along the Atlantic coast. In short, the United States was losing. If you visit the small town of Brookville, Maryland, just 20 miles north of Washington, D.C., you'll find a plaque near one of the largest houses towards the center of town. The population of Brookville is just north of three figures, 
so it'll be pretty hard to miss this plaque. On it, it reads, The United States Capitol for a Day. And, well, that's technically true. On August 24th, 1814, the very inexperienced United States Army was dealt a humiliating defeat outside of Washington, D.C. at the Battle of Bladensburg. The English forces now had a straight shot to the U.S. Capitol, unopposed. Word got to Washington quickly, and everyone began packing their things. Anything of value or anything deemed essential to running a country was loaded up on wagons as quickly as possible. A common American myth is that the First Lady, Dolly Madison, saved many of the presidential portraits, including the famous one of George Washington, solemn-faced with his hand outstretched, open palm before him. You know the one. However, it was actually the president's gardener and a few slaves that thought to save them. The first lady, along with the presidential staff and several slaves, headed north to rendezvous with President James Madison. As they left, the British forces entered Washington. President Madison, who had been putting his commander-in-chief title to good use, met with his wife Dolly and many members of his staff at the tiny town of Brookville, Maryland. He rode in on a horse carrying a large strongbox, which held the entire United States treasury inside. They stayed at the house of Caleb Bentley, a Quaker with a large house in town. From there, Madison monitored troop movements and best planned how to retake the capital and his home. Meanwhile, in Washington, British commanders were enjoying an enormous feast in the White House, which was then called the Presidential Mansion. After their meal, they ordered their troops to sack the city and burn any major government building to the ground. That night, Washington went up in flames. The Capitol building, the Presidential Mansion, the War Department, all burned. The only government structure left standing was the U.S. Patent Office. Early the next day, a massive storm tore through Washington, D.C. This storm spawned a tornado that lifted tons of flaming debris from the burning buildings. The twister flung wreckage all over the Capitol, including a field cannon which fell onto some British troops, killing one and injuring several others. Overall, the storm killed a few British soldiers and several American civilians. The storm caused even more damage to the city, but it also put out most of the fires. Washington was saved. Due to the horrendous storm and realizing they probably couldn't hold their position, the English retreated back to the coast. Many Americans still refer to that weather anomaly as the storm that saved Washington. Soon, President Madison and many congressmen returned to the Capitol. Provisional sessions of Congress were held in the U.S. Patent Office. The President issued a proclamation calling on all U.S. citizens that were able to fight to come to Washington to defend the Capitol from another attack. American morale was weakened, but then again, so was England's treasury. The British commanders had expected to take plenty of valuables and money from the U.S. Capitol, but it turns out that most of said valuables and money were evacuated to Brookburg, U.S. Capitol for a day, Maryland. With both sides agreeing there was little to be gained from continued fighting, both parties agreed to begin peace negotiations in the neutral Netherlands in the city of Ghent. However, negotiations were tedious, and many British commanders realized that they still had the upper hand, and orders to use that upper hand accordingly. 
the British Navy set its eyes upon New Orleans. See, New Orleans has a diverse history. It was founded by French settlers, then ceded to the Spanish, then taken back by the French before being sold as the crown jewel of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. However, New Orleans was sold to the United States by Napoleon Bonaparte, who was now exiled to the island of Elba, and Britain considered everything Napoleon did diplomatically to be null and void. Figuring taking New Orleans would allow them to keep the city after the War of 1812 ended, or at least give them a massive bargaining chip at the negotiation table, the British Admiral Alexander Cochrane began planning an assault of the city. On December 14, 1814, 60 British ships with over 14,000 soldiers and sailors aboard were anchored in the Gulf of Mexico. Admiral Cochrane sent out 42 longboats filled with 1,200 Royal Marines to take a small garrison in the bayou. The garrison was caught somewhat off guard, but managed to sink a few longboats before being overrun. The British took the garrison and set up a forward operating base to begin their inland assault. Just over a week later, Irish General John Keane led a vanguard of British troops along the east bank of the Mississippi River. Alongside the river was a road that led directly to New Orleans, nine miles to the north. Little did they know, the road to New Orleans was entirely undefended. But luckily for the Americans, General Keane made the fateful decision to stay and wait for reinforcements. When the advancing British army invaded his family home, a young man by the name of Gabriel Valere jumped out of the back window of his family farmhouse and ran north to New Orleans. In the city, a now famous general named Andrew Jackson had just instituted martial law. He was worried about the Spanish and Creole inhabitants of the city possibly defecting to the British side. He was trying to get any information on British troop movements when a young Gabriel Valeri was brought in. He told them of the British Army's advance. Andrew Jackson stood up, slammed his fist on the table, and declared, By the Eternal, they shall not sleep on our soil. Andrew Jackson's hatred of the British stemmed from his childhood. When he was just a boy, he fought in the Revolutionary War and was eventually captured by the British. While in captivity, a British officer ordered Jackson to clean his boots. Jackson adamantly refused. He was promptly slashed with the officer's sword, leaving scars on his hand and head. Upon being released along with his brother, they had to walk 40 miles to get home. A torrential downpour hit, and his brother, so malnourished from their British captivity, died before reaching home. His mother was serving as a nurse for other American prisoners of war when an outbreak of cholera took her life along with many others. The British buried her in an unmarked grave. Jackson never knew which of the graves was his mother's. He blamed the British Empire for the death of his brother and his mother, and a deep-seated hatred only grew from there. When the War of 1812 broke out, Jackson's courage and tenacity against the British showed and now he found himself as a major general commanding the American forces in New Orleans. With the new information of British troops coming up from the south, Jackson's troops, despite being outnumbered, went to give the British a welcoming party. On the night of December 23, 1814, Jackson's troops attacked the British forces. They were easily repelled. The British maintained their position, and the American forces retreated. 
Each side took around 200 casualties. While the attack was technically a failure, it scared the English officers enough to wait even longer for yet even more reinforcements before continuing forward. The American forces retreated north and finally settled down behind the Rodriguez Canal, about four miles south of New Orleans. There, they began to dig in, building earthworks behind the canal. The Americans worked through Christmas, fortifying a line perpendicular to the Mississippi River. This defensive line, fortified by extensive earthworks behind an eight-foot-wide canal, was dubbed Line Jackson. All the while, General Jackson and his officers were furiously writing requests for aid to everyone they could. And by everyone they could, I mean everyone they could. Andrew Jackson even met with Jean Lafitte, a French privateer and pirate captain, and offered him the release of all of his captured crew if he agreed to help defend New Orleans from the British. Captain Jean Lafitte agreed. When Jackson returned, he was overjoyed to find that their letters requesting aid had been answered. His 1,000 U.S. Army regulars were now aided by 58 U.S. Marines, 500 Louisiana Volunteers, 1,300 Tennessee Militia, 150 Mississippi Cavalry, just under 1,000 Kentucky Riflemen, 462 Freemen of Color, and 52 Choctaw Warriors. His naval support now included two U.S. Navy warships, a commercial steamship now outfitted with weapons, and Jean Lafitte's pirates. Jackson now had close to 5,000 men of all stripes ready to defend New Orleans. However, even more British reinforcements arrived in the bayou on New Year's Day, bringing their total troop count to just shy of 15,000 men. At 5 a.m. on January 8, 1815, the British troops began advancing on Line Jackson. There was an incredibly thick layer of fog blocking the view of the American line, but the troops continued to advance. Another assaulting force tried to flank the Americans by heading inland through the swamp, while another flanking group went by boat down the Mississippi River. The flanking force had trouble dragging heavy longboats filled with supplies through the mud and ended up missing the battle entirely. The main British force marched through the heavy fog cover, thinking they had to be getting close to the American defenses by now. And it turns out, they were. As the English troops now entered cannon range, some Americans began seeing a few men on horses approaching. They soon recognized them to be British officers. As the sun continued to burn off the morning fog, the Americans realized the British forces were right at their doorstep and opened fire. Muskets flashed, cannons boomed, Kentucky long rifles cracked. The ragtag group of misfit Americans from all walks of life let loose their collective firepower. The British were caught almost entirely off guard. British Captain Henry Lane ordered his first rocket troops. Yeah, you heard that right, rocket troops, to begin lighting their rocket fuses. These rockets were already very inaccurate, and the mayhem around them sure didn't help. Rockets flew off in every possible direction and exploded, only adding to the chaos. American sharpshooters, many using rifles instead of the usual smoothbore muskets, were extremely effective in picking off British officers, who, on their horses, were just above the fog line. Realizing how close the British soldiers actually were, 
the artillery teams began loading their cannons with chain shot and grape shot. Chain shot is two cannonballs connected by a chain, so when fired out, would either wrap around and damage the mast of a ship, or in this case, cut through lines of tightly packed enemy troops. On the other hand, grape shot is a bag of tiny ball bearings, which acted as a massive shotgun blast when fired from a cannon. Both are exceptional anti-personnel weapons, and both were absolutely devastating at the Battle of New Orleans. Chain shot cut entire platoons in half, and grape shot shredded any British soldier that got anywhere close to Line Jackson. Perhaps the worst part about the British troops' situation was that there were no officers left to command them. They had no orders other than their original command to continue forward. Muskets held by Louisiana farmers, New Orleans laborers, Tennessee militia, Kentucky riflemen, freed slaves, and Native Americans simply cut through the British forces. A commanding officer from the reserve troops eventually charged forward and gave the order to retreat, finally putting an end to the slaughter. New Orleans was saved. In only about one hour, the British suffered 2,459 casualties. The Americans, on the other hand, only suffered 333. Being in Louisiana, surrounded by Creole and voodoo culture, I can't help but think that some men believed that zombies were rising up from the British dead after the battle. However, they soon realized that these men had been lying down pretending to be dead and rose up to surrender to the American forces. Over 500 of these British zombies surrendered after the battle. Additionally, a bugle boy had climbed a tree near the outskirts of the battlefield and had played his bugle for the entire conflict. He surrendered his bugle to the Americans, and he was promptly treated as a hero for his bravery, and I'm guessing for his sweet tunes during the fighting. Admiral Cochrane, furious at the failure of the army's assault, decided to sail up the Mississippi River and assault New Orleans from the river itself. However, he had to get past Fort St. Philip first. As he got close, the fort opened fire with heated shot, which meant the cannonballs were heated by a furnace before being fired by the cannons. These glowing hot cannonballs caused immense damage for obvious reasons, so Cochrane ordered the Navy to sit in the Mississippi River just out of range of the fort's artillery and fire barrage after barrage of cannon fire at the fort. After several days of this, and support from Jean Lafitte's privateers, the British finally decided to give up on taking New Orleans. Besides, they would have much bigger problems. A few weeks later, Napoleon Bonaparte escaped his exile from the island of Elba and retook Paris soon after. The Battle of New Orleans, while often forgotten in the modern era, shaped the course of the early United States. First off, it confirmed that the United States, along with the land purchased from France, would remain legitimate to other players in the world stage. While the United States didn't really win the War of 1812, they sure felt like they won. And it turns out, winning a war, or believing you won a war, does quite a bit to promote national pride. The Battle of New Orleans gave the young country an enormous confidence boost that reinforced other ideas like Manifest Destiny. Another effect of the war in general was a mutually beneficial relationship between the United States and Britain, one that held strong 
until four men from Liverpool invaded the United States in the 1960s. The surprising success of the Battle of New Orleans also spelled the end of the Federalist Party, who for the most part opposed the war in the first place. Right before the battle, the Federalists held the Hartford Convention, which put forth possible constitutional amendments such as ending the Three-Fifths Compromise and requiring a two-third congressional majority to declare war, which seems downright reasonable today, but with Jackson's victory in New Orleans, the Federalists just appeared unpatriotic and out of touch. The Federalist Party became another casualty from the Battle of New Orleans. Without a doubt, the biggest winner of the Battle of New Orleans was General Andrew Jackson. Almost overnight, Jackson was hailed as a war hero. Almost all of the credit fell directly on his shoulders. He rode his popularity all the way to the White House, defeating John Quincy Adams in 1828. Jackson was an incredibly interesting man, who was hailed as a hero of the everyman. He challenged the status quo in several ways and remains a paradoxical figure to this day. His biographer, James Pardon, trying to sum up Jackson's contradictions, wrote, quote, Andrew Jackson, I am given to understand, was a patriot and a traitor. He was one of the greatest generals and yet fairly ignorant of the art of war, a brilliant writer, elegant, eloquent, but without being able to compose a correct sentence or spell words of four syllables, the first of statesmen, yet he never devised, he never framed even a measure. He was the most candid of men, but was capable of the most profound dissimulation, a most law-defying, law-obeying citizen, a stickler for discipline, yet he never hesitated to disobey his superior, a democratic autocrat, an urban savage, an atrocious saint." Unquote. However, it's safe to say that Jackson may have never left his mark on history without the Battle of New Orleans propelling him into the national limelight. Many people benefited from that fateful final battle on the Mississippi, but due to American expansion and Jackson's eventual trail of tears, the main losers ended up being the Native Americans, as is so often the case. But perhaps the most important detail about the Battle of New Orleans is its date. The Treaty of Ghent, which formally ended the war, was signed on Christmas Eve, 1814, over two weeks before the Battle of New Orleans. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to support the show, the place to do it is Patreon. Don't forget to rate Historium wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>